are listening wow. on a quarter to three movie podcast for Life of Pi. My name is Tom Chick. I am here this week with Christian Molierski. <laughs> Far from it. I was named after a swimming pool. <laughs> and with a Life of Pi tagline, Kelly Wand. It's a pitch phrase, but um, it's like Castaway, but instead of a non-CG volleyball, it's something way more relatable. The CG suppressed memory of an Indian teenager's id. Spoiler? Hmm. No. Okay. <laughs> hey, do I sound okay? I mean, like, Kelly Wand, you always sound awesome. One of my I, favorite uh, things about Monday is listening to you on the podcast, Kelly Wand. Ah. So Wait, Monday's like, no one likes them, so like that's the least evil. Is that what you're saying? Kelly Wand, you live to make people's Mondays easier. I think that's one of one of the things that you do in this universe. Why don't we just make the Fridays better and do these Thursdays? Fridays are already awesome, Kelly Wand. They don't, they don't need, need help. Yeah, they, do not, they do not need your help. Mondays need your help. You're here to do that, and you do a wonderful job with it. You're welcome, Mondays. <laughs> uh, so let's see. So we don't want to spoil anything. And maybe you haven't seen Life of Pi yet. Stick around for a second. We're not going to spoil it. Uh, but before we talk about Life of Pi, does anybody have any corrections from last week that they need to bring up? I'm fine. Kelly Wand, any corrections you need to bring up? I thought I had one, but I forgot. Okay. Dingus, so <laughs> you, need to, you need to correct anything you said last week. Uh, did I like the movie last week? What was uh, it again? Are you it was, sure? it was Lincoln. Lincoln. Right? Um, I read uh, uh, one of my Facebook friends, uh, who's uh, somebody who voted in a red state kind of a way, mm. just posted <laughs> that um, he just saw Lincoln, and he's mad that the <laughs> that the movie showed the War of Northern Aggression as a movie about slavery. <laughs> Really? I like he, that. He posted that in earnest. So there you go. Point out because he's a Republican. That'll fry his head. Sometimes I miss living in a red state. Other times I don't. This is one of those times. Yep, me too. Uh, all right, so let's see. No corrections. Uh, any trailer anecdotes? Kelly Wand, I saw a trailer for Parental Guidance. The thing oh, where, God. Where Bette, Midler, or Bette Midler and uh, Billy Crystal play the grandparents, and I'm going to reduce my price before, I think it was at something like $50. I will now see parental guidance for $30. Wait, and what's your guilt? How did, how did that happen? What's Here's my rationale. I, for instance, find Robin Williams incredibly annoying. Uh, the guy just, I, I can't, he, 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 he has this weird energy he brings to movies, and I think it damages movies a lot. I don't like Robin Williams movies. I feel the same way about, like, like Danny Houston. I can't stand Danny Houston. But when a movie casts Danny Houston as someone who you're not supposed to like, I'm like, hey, perfect casting, that works for me. So here it looks like they're casting Billy Crystal instead of being a sort of a lovable leading man. They're casting him as an annoying, crotchety old grandfather who gets hit in the balls with a baseball bat. And I How think many times? At least once, once you see in the trailer. So I'm like, yeah, I could be on board with that. Uh, and plus Marissa Tomei is in it. I can't. I see her in a trailer, and I'm like, you know, she, she is a national treasure. So. She's you know, not in the guilt trip. with Marissa Tomei. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. You, you, thanks for wasting 10 minutes. <laughs> well, I just also wanted to be, you know, uh, Billy Crystal getting whacked in the in the gonads with a baseball bat. It's like the cherry on top of the Marissa Tomei uh, uh, ice cream sundae. Uh, all wait, right. Wait, 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 wait. Is Robin Williams even in that movie? Are you just like comparing comic relief hosts? I'm, I'm mentioning oh. actors who I who I. Really find, annoying. find annoying, yeah. You know what? I would say Robin Williams has been in more good movies than Billy Crystal. I would, I would. Survivors? 
You would? Well, I don't think of survivors. Like there are times where when Robin Williams really clamps down his mania and it sort of seethes that I feel it works. Uh, like the Insomnia sure. remake. Um, there's a there's a, an adaptation of a Joseph, Joseph Conrad novel called uh, the not the Secret Agent. Is that right? Uh, at any rate, there's a he plays an anarchist in a, like a an 18th century anarchist and 19th century anarchist in a movie. I really like that. Um, that uh, thing where he plays the photography processor dude. What is that? 48 hour. I kind of like being human for some reason. That's kind of. I've never he's, seen. Is that the one that Bobcat Goldthwait did that Dingus has talked about? He's really good in World's Greatest Dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I want to see. Uh, so, uh, but Billy Crystal, um, like two good Billy Crystal movies. Can't do it. Watch. Did you say name two Billy Good? Yeah. Well, I could name one possibly good one, and that would be Parental Guidance. That's all I could do. Oh. Uh, the one you haven't seen yet is the only one. So Williams wins with <laughs> the shutout. Dingus, can you name a good Billy Good uh, Billy Crystal movie? Or you know I can. Are, are you guys baiting me? <laughs> what was Billy Crystal in uh, Midnight Run? I don't recall. When Harry Met Sally. Come on. Ah, <laughs> Dingus likes when Harry Met Sally. See, uh-huh. I find that movie insufferable because of I don't. Of course you do. I'll have what Dingus is having. <laughs> I, I would uh, I would charge whoever would want us to go see Parental Guidance. I would see it for thirty dollars as well, but that person would have to see uh, would have to promise to see Smurf Two in three D, which was the oh, other trailer I had to watch. Yeah, how about that? Not that close. That see, the... the Hobbit trailer looks like Smurfs to me. I oh, I'm off book. By the way, you guys ready for this? I'm off book for this. Uh, far to the east, over rivers and ranges, lies a solitary peak. The dwarves. Are intent upon reclaiming the homeland, but I don't know. Dwarves really want to reclaim their homeland. I, I was close. Does anybody know when Tom broke from the script? <laughs> they don't reclaim the their dwarves are intent to get some Seven Eleven. I, I I almost made it through. I was like, oh, I think I'm I'm going to try to remember these two lines, and I remembered one and a half of them. So, oh, uh, well, all right. Yes, wait, wait, wait. You know how I hate biopics? I do. I kind of want to see uh, Hitchcock a little bit. God, did you see it? Anybody see it? I didn't see it yet. I want to. I was just thinking about it, and just th- thinking about it. <laughs> I want you to throw yourself on that uh, rotund British grenade for It's us. like Lincoln, except it's Psycho instead of the Thirteenth Amendment, because it's like all during Psycho. Mm. So it'd be just like Lincoln. Did, you didn't see it, Tom? I thought you would have. I did not. No, I've had a. It's a very busy time of year for me, so uh, I have not. Oh been- yeah. As I would normally. Um, disinterest is palpable. Uh, no disinterest, uh, uninterest. I would say to be more oh, technically impalpable. <laughs> uh, all right, so Dingus, what did we see this week? Well, uh, this week we saw Life of Pi, mm. a 2012 American adventure drama book club movie about a man in a boat. Uh, the movie was directed by Ang Lee and written by David Nagy. Or McGee, I'm not sure how you say it. It stars Siraj Sharma, Irfan Khan, Taboo, Rafe Spall. Uh. And that's all. Uh, Life of Pi is rated PG. Oh. For emotional, thematic content throughout. Throughout's some, yeah, some scary action sequences and peril. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Uh, uh, so, Life of Pi, uh, it, it was actually a stellar weekend at the box office this weekend. Lots of money. Uh, it's a holiday. Right. People want to yeah. show up and see their Twilight movies. They want to, you know, they've heard from their friends they should see Skyfall, or maybe they've heard on a podcast, for instance. Uh, so, uh, 
Life of Pi and Lincoln did very well. Life of Pi had a lot of competition this week, uh, and it came in number five. Oh. It was beat by, uh, let's see, so it goes Twilight, Skyfall, Lincoln. Uh, there was that cartoon thing, Rise of the Guardians, uh, and those were the first four. After that was Life of Pi, which made uh, $22 million, which actually was very good considering um, it's – uh, I, I think it's sort of like an, regarded as an art house film. It opened pretty wide, uh, but I don't think is it Fox. Did, did Breaking Dawn make more than Skyfall already? Uh, yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, no, well, ask? no, but Skyfall made a ton at the beginning. Don't talk to me. Month, though. It's yeah. almost a billion dollars. <laughs> that's that's internationally though, Dingus. Uh, I I think it's doing well, but I'm pretty sure I could be wrong about this. I would love to be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure the Twilight movie is going to beat it. Um, uh, but you know, my what, favorite part was when Dawn broke the second time. Uh, is that a line from a James Bond movie? I'm sorry. What were you saying? <laughs> I thought Dawn broke on the, uh, the the next James Bond movie is called Dawn Broke. <laughs> uh, all right, so Life of Pi uh, doing that well financially. Uh, I think Fox is happy enough with it. Um, I don't remember what number you gave it. Twenty-two million it opened at. Uh, so Metacritic, which gives the average rating of reviews that use ratings, uh, Life of Pi is at seventy-eight on Metacritic. On Rotten Tomatoes, which gauges the percentage of reviews that are positive overall, Life of Pi, 86%. Wow. That's really a number that's similar to the other one, but slightly higher. Shit. Well, Kelly so wait, one of them is a percentile, you said, and what's the other one? Uh, Kelly Wand, so, if you haven't figured out Metacritic by this point, I don't think we can help you. <laughs> but Kelly, well, what we want from you is enough about math. Why don't you give us a piopsis? <laughs> oh, you mean a life of piss? <laughs> I don't generally <clears throat> want to go on record as asking for that, but uh, sure, let's have it. You don't always get what you ask for, Tom. That's true. Hang on. There's no piss to... on the podcast. <laughs> There's no pee in our oddcast. Let's keep it that way. <laughs> I like right, Tom. So, so Kelly Wan, uh, whatever you'd like yes. to call the synopsis this this week, uh, let's have it. Rock and roll. <sighs> Life is wow, pissed. Wow, it opened with a with a uh, sort of a resigned sigh. Well, I got to do with like some voices and I'm Prometheus sigh. Wow. All right. Okay, so there will be voices though. Good. I I always like it when Kelly Wan acts. I hate it when I act, <laughs> and that's why I was sighing. It's bad enough when I write. Uh, Life of Piss. Dialogue I heard while watching Life of Pi. Knock, knock. Hello? Hey, I'm a writer, famous or aspiring. Who fucking knows? But facially, I'm kind of like a Dean Jones version of Bradley Cooper, kind of, huh? <laughs> Mind if I sit in your living room all day while you do shit and ask questions about your life, supposedly for a book I'm writing, even though I never write anything? Bradley, welcome. I am that Indian actor from Spider-Man who gave a teenager he knew was shadowing him the combination to a room full of top-secret CG spiders instead of CG tigers. Pretend I'm the same character, I guess. Thank you. I'd love to stay for lunch and dinner. Speaking of which, I want to write an unfilmable book about your life, or at least the part where you spent 223 days at sea doing nothing. Ah, you wish to profit from my trauma. Very well, at least your book is about India, a flattering way to heal old wounds between our nations. Uh, actually, it's about Portugal. 
My publisher said Indian culture was too esoteric to appeal to American audiences, so we should play it safe. Actually, I threw it all away two years ago because everybody said the pros didn't have enough CG. Actually, it wasn't everybody. It was just Dim Night Shyamalan. But still, maybe if he'd been Portuguese, the village would have been awesome, huh? Well, I'm still flattered the way I suspect God feels, despite my much profounder belief in 32 billion other deities. You see, my friend, I am spiritually inclusive. I believe in everything, although the only services I regularly attend are devotionals to Azathoth. Getting my wife to convert involved brain surgery, but I'm also partial to Satanism, Scientology, Atheism, and the Force. They all have much to teach us. Wow, sounds like you were at sea a long time. Which side of Gaza would you live on? Side of... Haha, <laughs> 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 ha, the universe, my androgynous white-skinned friend, is but a cloud atlas of metaphors strung together to make an ass out of you or me. But as we say in my land, finally, after centuries of blood-soaked conflict, first things first. Chapter 1. I was named after a swimming pool, so all the kids referred to me as urine. I put a clever stop to that. Hey, look, it's that piss kid. Let's moitalize him. Ha! Your bullying of me shall now cease. Behold, I have memorized the first nine cotillion digits of a mathematical theorem and insist you shall all hereafter refer to me as same. Whose ass shall you stop now, my foolish, vast horde of much larger adversaries? <laughs> as you can see, my nameless Caucasian framing device, every day of my life has been besotted with wonder and spectacle. Yeah, I might massage that into a pie fight so it plays in Peoria. Any more funny namisms you want to get off your chest? Ha ha, indeed. The tiger's name was Richard Parker. Why? Ha ha, that is the best part of all. Clerical error. <laughs> ha. So, lifeboat? I had a childhood full of magical realism and particle routines until one day we were all Kama sutra by the most 3D metaphor of all, bankruptcy, or as my lovably shrewish mother put it, to my lovably incompetent father. You and your harebrained schemes. No one wants to come to a zoo in India. We already got fucking elephants in the streets. <laughs> Honey, relax. I've come up with the perfect solution to my last 500 harebrained schemes in a row. I've booked us and all our animals passage on a Japanese fishing boat to Canada. And don't worry, this time I vetted the cook myself. How I miss how wrong both of them were constantly. Uh, this is the mom talking, so it's my girl voice. Hey, honey, have you seen my pet goat? It's missing from our zoo's goat exhibit. Everybody's asking for their money, but what the fuck? I was trying to teach the kid a lesson, all right? We'll get you a new goat, all right? Just get off my ass. He belongs in the donkey exhibit. <laughs> Dingus, did you get that? I said get off of him. How'd the tiger even get the goat through the bars? Salam thank alam. you. Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah. See? It's all I could think about for that whole fucking movie. That was awesome, Dad. Can I have CG for dinner? <laughs> I wish I'd name myself that now. Uh, this is my white voice again. So, lifeboat? Ha ha, journey is about the life, my friend, never the boat. Uh, you sure you're not, M. Knight? Even before the lifeboat, magical poetry infused every event aboard ship. Sir, please, my wife does not eat human excrement, and your saliva has only improved the flavor considerably. Swine, you feed primates in cages. I feed ones in tin cans. We shall never begin to understand one another. <laughs> <laughs> 
Then came the storm. I released all the animals who ate most of the crew and wrecked great havoc and blew up the engine room and impregnated the captain's wheel and caused us to sink. In hindsight, I probably should have searched for my parents during all this. But the men were screaming at me in the rain to get into a lifeboat because there was a tiger in it or not to get into it. Was I crazy? One of those. I don't speak nautical. After that, I drifted around at sea for weeks with a bunch of giant animals in a palatial lifeboat, not using my flare gun yet, catching some rays of disease. At long last, I was happy, my life one of idle bliss. But just when things were finally starting to look up, no, hyena, stop eating the zebra. We've got to work together. Ugh. Fine. Too late. Zebra's dead. Ugh. I guess someone should say something. Anyone? <laughs> Fine. I'll go first. Zebra, let's face it. You were probably going to be the first in this group to buy it. So what whatevs. No! Hyena, stop eating the orangutan. You still barely touched your zebra. <laughs> I've struck gold with my acting. That's not... You barely touched your zebra. It's the zebra, at least. Yeah, good work, orangutan, hitting Ian in the face, fighting back. I didn't think of that. I got your back next time, don't worry. Just caught me off guard that time. Primate, sticking together. No, he's eating you. Do that hitting thing again. No! <laughs> the rest of it's not as good, sadly. I mean... Eventually, the tiger I had not even noticed snapping under my scrotum ate them all. He and I had many adventures together. He yawned while I gave a piranha a concussion, and we visited an island of tubers and meerkats where I took yet another nap. Luckily, the next island down wasn't evil, and the tiger got bored and bailed. Guess that's it. Did I mention the time he pissed in my face? My id couldn't have generated that much piss. Besides, it was white. Okay, uh, cool story, bro. think I've heard enough. should probably get going. Ha ha, that is what the Japanese shipping owners said. They said, instead of suing us, give us a story that's not too crazy for the insurance company. So I told them that a hunchbacked Frenchman cut my mom's leg off and fed his hunch to my father. What say you to that, my crestfallen Anglo-Saxon guest? Uh, try harder? Ah, uh, <laughs> and which do you consider the better story? Uh, I guess the CG one instead of the incomprehensible one. You just kind of shoehorned in there at the end. I don't know. I wasn't really listening. And so it is with God. Ah, oh, my wife, Paprika. Paprika. Their children. They found the tiger version slightly less traumatizing as well. Oh, is that the same chick who tied the string around your wrist under the pier when you guys were teenagers? Haha. <laughs> like my church, my harem has many mansions. And don't tell the Japanese zoo shipping insurers, but in RL, it wasn't my wrist. <laughs> Uh, the end. <laughs> the island of tubers and meerkats. I love that. <laughs> I just got to scream more. That's what I learned from that opsis. I try to learn something every week, even if you guys. It's usually just too long, so I don't want to All right, who here has read the book? Oh, Dingus. What? Is Dingus is Dingus going to be our source material expert? I, I I cannot do that this week. Do we have a source material expert? I cannot help you. I, I am sorry. I do not belong to a book club. <laughs> uh, I so read the book, like Cloud Atlas, I kind of went. I, I kind of want to skim it just to see if it's Tom Hanksy. But I felt like I'd seen, like after Life of Pi, I kind of didn't. I felt like I, I, I read the Tao of Pooh, and I thought that was enough. You paid your dues. 
your Pudus. My Pudus. Uh, I had never read it, but I did have, uh, at the time it came out, the girl I was dating had read it, and she had a little stuffed tiger that she kept calling Richard Parker, and I didn't really understand that. And so she told me a bit about the book, and she loaned me a copy of it. And so I started reading it and got maybe you know, 40, 50 pages into it uh, before anybody got on a boat or got in a shipwreck or anything. And at one point, she told me what happened at the end, like the uh. twist. And so I was like, well... It's not really compatible. Yeah, okay. Oh, so that is a twist. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. What's the twist? Well, we'll uh, we'll get into that. But it, that well, actually, no. We're in the spoiler part of the podcast. The idea that that all of this is an invented story. You know that uh, as you're reading it, uh, I presume it doesn't give that away. And certainly, the way the movie is shot, it doesn't really give that away either. It's not shot as if it's a dream or as if it's a story that he's making up. Um, so she told me that that's how it turned out, and that the orangutan was the mother, and the cook was the hyena. Like she told me all of that, and so I did not finish reading the book. But what did then she happened, tell you that because she thought oh, we're going to finish it? Well, that's why M Night didn't want to do it. Okay, that makes sense now. I did. Okay. Right? Yeah, because M Night Right. He he was attached to the movie for a while, uh, and I can only imagine how that would have turned out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I did not read the book. But then for uh, in the ensuing in the following years, I've been asked many times when I'm talking to people and they just dis- they discover that I had uh, uh, got a degree in religion. I studied religion in college. I frequently get asked, oh, have you read Life of Pi? And oh, I really well, I'd I didn't understand the Vinci code based on your education. Uh, I didn't understand why. Because what I had read of it and what I knew about it was all the early stuff where he talks about growing up with the, the different religions, you know, with Christianity, with Hinduism, with Islam. So I just thought they asked me that because these were the book was partly a memoir of a guy who'd had exposure to a lot of different religions. What I discovered seeing the movie um, was that the twist ending that, Beck, that this girl had told me about, uh, she kind of... I'm not going to say she didn't understand it, but she didn't explain the significance of it to me, just the, wow. the twist itself. So I now finally, having seen the movie, understand why somebody would ask me that. When they say I studied religion and when I've talked about religion to people, they say, oh, have you read Life of Pi? I finally understand why they ask me that, why somebody who has read the book uh, would be excited to talk about it with someone who has studied religion and who has this perspective on it that I do. Um, because I sort of feel that religions, uh, as a guy who's not religious myself, I feel that they are the equivalent of these grand works of art. They're these amazing man-made creations, I feel. Uh, and I, I respect them. I think they're beautiful and intricate and occasionally terrible. Um, so that's sort of my stance when I talk about religion, when I'm uh, not, not trying but to it's respect just a, belief. It's just a genre of fiction that you prefer. Like, no. So I and I feel that the point of Life of Pi and the point of the twist, uh, and I th- I think the movie really brings it around very well is this idea of we don't know God until we're introduced to Him, and for the most part, how we're introduced to Him is through stories. That religion is about telling stories that protect us from. The hostility of the universe. You know, they, they give us hope. They give they give us meaning. These stories, religion in general, uh, they make the natural order more than just a dumb reflection of our emotions, which is what uh, the father is saying. Pi sees in the tiger's eyes. Uh, they they give the natural order uh, meaning. Um, so I, I feel it. You know, in the in the movie, you know, he starts out reading Dostoevsky. It shows him reading Camus, uh, and then over the course of the movie. 
he appreciates, you know, he, he learns to tell a story to conceal or protect himself from or put meaning into something terrible uh, or something horrible. Uh, and that's kind of the point of religions and of the movie. Um, so I, 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 I loved that about the movie. I loved that this meaning that I had, I'd never appreciated in the book because it was kind of ruined for me. I loved discovering that in this movie. Mm. It reminded me of when Olivia Wilde said she'd read Dostoevsky and Tron Legacy. And it was like, <laughs> you never know which work she's talking about. And in this, it just, you're not sure which work he's talking about. Well, he's reading, was it Notes from the Underground? I forget which one he was reading. But, but you know, Dostoevsky and Camus are, are uh, they're sort of placeholders for existentialism, this idea that right. there is no meaning, it's just your own personal experience, you die, it's done, it's over. Uh, and that kind of gets subverted by this idea of religion as storytelling. Uh, it, it's sort of, you know, the part that I had read of the book was this young man's religious journey, and I didn't see where the, how it all tied together. Um, so I, 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 you know... the. I think it's it's way better as far as a story about religion than uh, Tron Legacy. Was this the Spanglish girl? <laughs> and how dare you say that? That's ridiculous. Also, but, um, uh, so there's me. So I, I quite like this movie. I, I was I was in awe of the overall story. I mean, I, I don't know that I can read the book. <laughs> that might still be ruined for me. But I, I really admired that Ang Lee wanted to make a movie of it, and I really enjoyed what he did with it and the visuals. But more to the point, just as a guy who admires religions, I really loved what it had to say about religion. So there's me. Who's next? <sighs> Kelly one, you sound a little down on it. Mm, I liked it while I was watching it, and I liked the visuals, and I liked the 3D, but, but then I thought maybe it wasn't as good. <laughs> it's grown off me. Okay. About it. But, but it had one really cool moment near the end uh, that I thought, actually, because when people make these movies about stories, you're talking about, it's like, I usually just judge it as a story, like, like what was memorable about it to begin with mm-hmm. and um like what made what made the bible memorable to me when i was a kid was just it was super gory and there was a lot of bat like fighting and shit. so i thought <laughs> that was good i don't remember the actual storytelling um but in this at the end for me like the best part of the story is like when the tiger didn't look back at him when it goes into the jungle like that was that worked on both levels for me like that would have devastated me and it also would have worked as a uh, as a religious lesson if you will I'll analyze okay. what you're talking about. So that part of the life. Uh, Dingus, then where do you fall? How did this work for you? I couldn't stand it. Wow. <laughs> we have a good. We have quite the spread. Yeah, there. I always love the three Vs. <laughs> and I can't wait to hear it. Okay, yeah. All right, so Dingus, what, uh, what, what bothered you about it? What, explain. Uh, it, defend uh, yourself. Well, Tom, I'm quite inspired by what you have to say about it, and I'm really pleased to hear your take on it. Um, because for me, when we get to the... Uh, to his uh, explanation story that he gives to the Japanese dudes, mm-hmm. uh, which, um, you know, when he's telling what actually happened. If that had been more of a, a story of, because I've, I've read a, a good deal of, of sort of uh, shipwreck survival stories that I really like. I like that genre a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it had been more of a, I don't know how to say this, mundane horror story, Instead of the cook ate a rat and dried it in the sun and then we cut off a guy's leg and dried him in the sun and then he ate him and then he stabbed my mom and then I stabbed him. If it, if it had been more of a, of a, of a real horror story that he went through and then he created this elaborate tale around it rather than this, this feeling that, that 
the story he constructed, uh, basically everything, everything in his story takes place in the first two minutes of the story. And then it's the rest of the story. Whereas the story that he's telling the guys is the, is, I don't know. It just doesn't fit for me. It doesn't work for me. Well, and, do you, do you, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, no, I, I'm really interested to hear you, you talk about the, the religious aspects of it because, because that stuff just didn't work for me. And in addition to the CG stuff and the, and the tiger jumping out scares and the stuff that's supposed to be for 3d that, uh, a lot of it just didn't work for me on any level. Okay. Um, you know, from the spectacle of the shipwreck, which I thought was completely inept, uh, to to a lot of the animal CG, and and then this this uh, and even the framing device, which which Kelly I think adequately reduced to I don't know how do you say my nameless Caucasian framing device, which I, I don't see any reason for. Um, I, I really didn't didn't like that, but I, I really I'm actually relieved to hear that you that you got some actual inspiration from it, Tom. And I'd like to hear you talk about that because it was. Me. I mean, the whole point of it is that here's a guy who's a murderer, and he is telling a story. You know, he was driven to this basically by the universe, by fate, by chance, whatever, by weather. Uh, this is a guy who had murdered someone, who had seen. Uh, you, you know, he had he'd failed his mother. He hadn't protected her, and he, he murders a man and. This, the entirety of the movie is pretty much him confessing this murder to someone else and how he has dealt with it through his life, like what he has done. And I see that as an allegory for how people use religion. Um, uh, so so the, the whole framing device thing, is, I feel, is, is crucial. And, and for me, as far as making that point, uh, I, I just I, I loved it. Uh, and and I, I presume it's a huge part of, of the book as well. So I just really admire that Ang Lee and... Uh, David McGee was that the screenwriter's name? Uh, yeah. Okay, that uh, that that they did bring it around, and that they didn't dwell, by the way, on what actually happened. Because I was worried they were going to show it. Because again, I knew what the twist was going to be. I could see it coming, uh, uh, and I was worried we were going to see Gerard Depardieu again. Like I I got plenty of him in that one scene, but I was worried <laughs> we were going to see uh, a bunch of him in the boat. And I'm so glad that they soft pedaled all that stuff. That they just have that kid actor just sort of relating it very matter of factly. Uh, that it's not lurid in recreating it, uh, that it mainly just leaves us with the spectacle of the story that he's created. Um, and even, and, uh, I'm sorry, did I cut you off? Uh, I was going to say something, go ahead. Well, and even the, the story he created, uh, I just, I loved so much of it. Like, I loved it as, so, so when I, this book, uh, when, when my girlfriend at the time had read that, so her name was Becky, so uh, when Becky read this book and she was telling me about it, it struck me as one of those things that should be over in five minutes. You know, I've talked about this movie called The Reef, where people uh, get dumped in the water, and there's a great white shark in there, and the stupid movie goes on for, you know, like an hour of them in the water. That should be over in five minutes. The shark eats them. That's done. You know, there, there are a bunch of crappy monster movies that just draw it out when they should be over in five minutes. And I remember being told about, hey, so there's a guy in a lifeboat with a tiger and i asked her well does the tiger talk is he like friendly she's like no 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 he doesn't talk he's an actual tiger and I'm like well why isn't this over in five minutes you know what do they do and so i because i didn't get to that part of the book i really enjoyed seeing that here how you how it prodded her telling you the ending it sounds like well, no, she then gave me a copy of the book, and I read it. And at some point, I don't even remember. And you know what? Maybe I'm doing a disservice, and it was someone else who told me. But at some point, someone told me the end of the book. I thought it was her, and so I stopped reading it. Uh, but I never got to the point about you know how he deals with the tiger in the lifeboat and how he's got a little annexed lifeboat that he's built. Uh, so I really enjoyed seeing that unfold in the movie. 
Um, and I also, Dingus, I want to hear some about this. I really liked the CG in that I didn't feel it pulled any punches for for making this tiger look mean. Like, and, and for and and but still, uh, no. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say. Well, first, I just want to agree with Dingus that I thought. Uh, the fact, like his description of what really happened, may have played very differently in the book if it goes on in more detail. But See, in I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure how the book handled. Right. I just found it hard to visualize. Like I know what you're saying about not wanting to see Gerard Depardieu cut off a dude's leg, <laughs> but uh, I just couldn't follow what he was saying and reference it to what had happened. Like that I already seen. Like I was just remembering because I just seen an hour and a half of CG, so it was, wasn't really like equally weighted in my head. Like they, he was fabricating both stories, and one it, was just less interesting. It was kind of funny to me how they felt the need to have Rafe Spall. And by the way, I could not stand that guy. That uh, guy was such a weak link for me because Dingus and I both love Irfan Khan, and Dingus, I'll be curious to hear what you thought of him in this. I loved him in this movie, and I just felt like he was just working with a brick wall. And and to find out that this was one of the yahoos in Prometheus, by the way, just yeah. I totally. Uh, so um, I, I noticed that the <laughs> I movie. Didn't know that. The movie made a point to have uh, Rafe Spall basically relate the story, basically say, oh, so the orangutan yeah. was your mother, like for the people in the cheap seats. I was like, oh, God, really? We needed that? Uh, but it, I guess we did. Uh, so. Uh, so he did. That character did. That, and I think the audience did. I think that was a little something for the audience, maybe. Uh so, uh, so I really did like the CG. As a, it reminded me a bit of. I know that King Kong. A lot of folks don't like it, but one of the things I liked about King Kong was uh, how much life they gave King Kong. Like how how much personality he had, uh, how expressive his face was. Um, that, and I think anybody who own who has a pet who lives with an animal and looks in an animal's face and sees that expression. Uh, I thought King Kong captured that very well. And I felt some of the same about the tiger in Life of Pi. I really liked how expressive he was, how he wasn't, um, you know, cuddly, how he was mean. I liked the, when the poor guy was in the water and was struggling to get out of the water. I just loved the CG of the tiger. Uh, Dingus, you didn't like it. Explain uh, what what was the problem for you with the CG, and specifically, do you mean the tiger? Now, now first of all, do you know that all of the – was all the animal stuff CG or – I mean, as far as the the life you know stuff, I do not know, but I would not be the least bit surprised to find out that there was never a practical tiger in this movie. There was, but it was okay. supposedly like all CG. And then they used tigers too. It was like this never they were just basically contradicts itself. So they did. Okay, so they. Uh, but I, he was I, never obviously on the raft, with, right? Unless yeah, cap. So yeah, so Dingus, we don't know. Well, I, I like the face stuff you're talking about. I would definitely agree with you on that. But some of the body stuff really annoyed me. Well, actually, from the the first shot of the tiger coming down that that hallway of his cage, uh, when um, when Pi is is offering the meat, he just looks weird and squat. But but weirder for me is is that moment where he's climbing out of the boat or any of the water stuff, and and all I could sit there and think was. Boy, the bear in Brave looked so much better in that salmon scene. <laughs> Dingus, Brave was a cartoon. And that wasn't a real bear. That's exactly true. <laughs> the, the Irish I loved one. I loved the way the water and the way uh the way that bear in Brave was animated much more than I liked the way this tiger was scrambling into the boat a couple of times. Okay. I you know, it, it just was a little bit distracting to me. But you know, part of that is if I if I'm noticing that that I'm not really buying into the movie and and I was by the time I got to that point in the movie, I was kind of looking forward to this big spectacle of the shipwreck. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I hadn't seen any trailers. I just had this image in my head that there's going to be a shipwreck and somebody's going to wind up on a boat with a tiger. I didn't know that there would be other animals involved on the boat as well. So I was kind of looking forward to the way I guess people who watch the movie Flight would be looking forward to a plane crash. Uh, and the, the, the boat, the shipwreck was just cursory. I guess that's a that's a budgetary constraint, but it, it was just like, oh, it's turning over and, okay, I'm going to float underwater and see some lights. And that's basically it. Um, and uh, that's sort of not a fair assessment because that's not what the movie is going for and that's not what the budget calls for. So by the time we get to the, the tiger scrambling into the boat, I just wasn't buying it. So Dingus, what, uh, I, I think what they were trying to do, I mean, this... They had the budget, I think, to do whatever they wanted with CG. I don't know that it was budgetary so much as it was a point of view thing. Everything that we see is as Pi sees it. There's no, there's like maybe one or two establishing shots of the boat coming through the waves, but right. once things start going wrong, it's strictly what he can see over the tops of the waves or through the water. Uh, and I loved that about it, and it reminded me a bit, just this idea of something big and lit slipping under the waves reminded me a bit of the tripod attack on the ferry in War of the Worlds. And that does the same thing, where it's you only see what Tom Cruise has seen. You don't get a big overview. You don't get a Titanic view, like in a, right. a James Cameron movie. So I really liked the shipwreck a lot, just because it was these sort of terrifying glimpses of this thing tilting askew and then slipping underwater, and then that one shot where he sees the lights off in the, the distance of the water. Um, I, I was a big fan of the shipwreck as well, so the things that didn't work for you about the shipwreck, I, I have to be thumbs up on those. I was really I'm into those. I'm well, you know, the, actually on that. well, the thing is, for me, and and I would like that if I had felt any sense of tension whatsoever at that point. Okay. But but when he goes out on the deck and he's scrambling around like he's in a student film, like whoa, I got oh whoa, uh, and none of that stuff where he's scrambling around on the deck, and I didn't buy a minute of it where where he's like, well, I'm going sideways, I'm going sideways the other way. Uh, I I didn't buy any of that. And when he when he gets thrown over, I didn't get any of the peril whatsoever, even though it's rated PG for peril. Um, I didn't find any of that frightening or the least bit scary or in, I, I don't know. It just didn't work for me at all. Well, don't you think, Dingus, though, that uh, I, I, the fact that he's narrating it himself after the fact, I, I don't know that you're supposed to feel peril. Like, I don't think the movie is wanting you to think, oh, he could die here. Um, so I get well, what you're you, saying. Well, what, what I'm responding to is what uh -huh. you just said about how it affected you, and okay. it didn't affect me that way. Okay, okay. And, and actually, what you just brought up is interesting to me, because the movie shifts back and forth. It's got Irfan Khan's past tense narration, and it's also got Pi's yeah. present, this is what's happening to me in the present narration, which I got a little bit, why are we doing both of those things? Well, already, it's, he's an unreliable narrator, because there's not an actual zebra getting into the light. So it's like, even during the shipwreck scene, it's already fantastical. Well, if you choose to, it depends which story you choose to believe, Kelly. Uh. <laughs> uh, Dingus, did you not like the kit? What was his name? Uh, uh, can you tell me again? Surfan Sharma? His name no. is uh, Saraj Sharma. Oh, God, I'm such a white guy. I apologize to all uh, of yes, you. Um, he, he's fine. He's a, he's a newcomer okay. that found after like casting, like going for a casting call of 3,000 people. He has to yell no and no and no a thousand times. And it's kind of embarrassing to watch him have to do that. As, but he's he's fine, and 
Okay. He gets a variety of weird wigs to wear, and that's fine. I mean, he's he's fine. <laughs> so he's fine. All right. Well, I I I would say I really liked him. I thought he was a good anchor for the uh, the audience to sort of respond to. Like he, I I really liked him. But let's let's get down to brass tacks, Dingus. Uh, Irfan Khan has embarrassed himself considerably lately. The he was horrible in that Spider-Man movie. They did nothing with him. If you think that's bad, you should see a movie that David Lynch's daughter directed called Hiss. Oh, you saw it? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen his. And there's several S's on the end of it, and it, she shot it in India, and it's about, like, some Naga woman, snake woman thing. It's like a horror movie, and he's a chief of police, and it's terrible. And he's awful in it, and it's just terrible. So I have seen him in, in some terrible things lately. Um, so, Dingus, how did you find, <laughs> then, considering what your fun con has been doing lately with Spider-Man? You didn't see his, fortunately. Uh, how did you find him in this? One's a lizard, one's a snake. <laughs> Very good. Oh, guys. <laughs> Reptiles. Yeah. I-, I loved I loved him in this. Uh, and to be honest, um, when we got to the turn at the end, uh, he almost turned the movie for me because the way because of, because of the way he reacts as as a character to um, to that moment where he says where he talks about the the I don't know how he puts it, but the greatest tragedy is not saying goodbye and and how um how the tiger walks off without looking back at him and the reaction in his face and it's not just a tear I mean I'm a sucker for tears but 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 as he tells that story of the tiger walking away and how he felt about the tiger not looking back at him and as he relates it, I could have watched him instead of any of the intercutting of the Mexican dudes carrying the guy down the beach. And, and then to go to the next step of him, of him dealing with the repercussions of the other story and understanding the way he reacted to the tiger story has a, has a profound effect because he is, he has such, such weight. I mean, I mean, he sits there, he's making the guy breakfast or lunch or whatever he's making him. And you're right, Tom, he's, he's got to carry the whole thing because, uh, what, what's his name again? Rafe Spall can't, can't do anything. Uh, and they were going to have some, some bigger name actor and that was going to, it was Toby Maguire. They had, ironically, Toby Maguire and they, and I, I, I guess, um, Ang Lee felt that that would just mess up the scene because it would be all about <laughs> this was way better. He sure solved that problem. But uh, but I, I love Irfan Khan. I mean I I can I can watch that guy do almost anything. So yeah, yeah that worked for me. Uh, Dingus, in what other movie is Irfan Khan and a tiger are they featured? The Darjeeling Limited. Very good. <laughs> uh, and and I just let you know the the tiger and Darjeeling Limited at the end of that montage. I just love that part of the movie. The train montage and then there's the tiger and it I guess represents death or whatever and it's a puppet tiger. Uh, but uh, yeah, I just I think a you tiger. you put you put Irfan Khan and a tiger in a movie, and for me, uh, it's gets a thumbs up uh, so far. So, so Tom, I guess I'm I'm surprised, and this is kind of a um, a testament to the fact that I don't know religion as well as you do, I think. Uh, but I'm kind of surprised that that you don't find it to be sort of a facile treatment. No, of that. oh no, not way, at all. Because of the way it deals with it at the beginning, you know, if you if you convert to three more religions, you'll have uh, every day will be a holiday for you, and all that stuff about uh, I got introduced to Christ, I got introduced to um, mm-hmm. uh, Hindu to Allah to the uh, to Allah. Gods, to and then at the end the the whole the whole uh, 
thing about the movie is, well, and so it is with God. And that rings, that works with you? Why does that work for you? Because that's what I believe about religions. I mean, I really do believe that, like I said, that uh, I personally, and I, I, I admire people who believe otherwise, but I do believe that religions are man-made creations, and I think they're spectacular. Um, and so what this is, is a story, and I, I kind of resonate with this. I mean, I never was, uh, I, I never uh, adopted a particular religion, but I, I really can understand someone that age um, discovering different religions and being drawn to them, because that's how I got into that. You know, I... I remember discovering uh, like like Judaism uh, in in a world religions class in the in the, the Bible, and I just remember being fascinated by all of that in college, and then studying it, and going to graduate school. Um, so this story about this kid who's raised as a Hindu and then meets a priest, uh, and then you know hears the call to prayer and and. Uh, how he how these things fascinate him and he wants to know more and he wants to adopt them and uh and practice them and sort of embrace them and see what they're all about uh i love that i don't think that's facile at all um but they all say different things and then which one do you follow if you get they don't i i I disagree kelly one i think the point of all religion is a story to tell you that the universe being hostile and indifferent is not the natural state of things. That you matter. That something, whether it's whether it's Hinduism or even some weird nihilistic approach, like if you're a happy Buddhist or whatever. I think the point of all religion is that the hostile universe is not the final word. Is that there's more to it than that. So now, yeah, the specifics of whether or not it's salvation through Christ or uh, annulling attachment to things through nirvana, the specifics, I think, vary, of course. Um, but I think the, the goal is the same. And that's why when, uh, at the end, when Irfan Khan sort of, and, and who better, what a great actor to allow to sum up the CG spectacle when he says, the co- I've told you these two stories. You know, let's let's if we push the allegory further, I've given you these five religions. None of them really. It doesn't matter. They don't. Well, the, it doesn't really work with religions because religions do talk about the cause. But he tells about these stories. They don't get you any closer to the cause of the shipwreck. The right. result is the same. So, which story do you prefer? You know, we're no closer to understanding the, the, you know, so many religions retreat in this idea that you can't understand God. You know, there might be a facile story about the Big Bang or things on the backs of turtles or whatever, but a religion is not going to get you any closer to knowing the universe. You know, religion ultimately at some point has to rely on faith, so it can't get you any closer to the causes of why you're here necessarily. Uh, And it's not going to change the outcome. You will die, but which story do you prefer? So the fact that the arc of this movie leads to Irfan Khan delivering this this really beautiful presentation of what religion means and how it relates to these two stories that you've just seen unfold. Uh, I don't find that fac- facile at all. I find it fascinating. Um, yeah, but it's, it's a loaded question. It's like, hey, what you refer to the hour and a half with the CG or like, uh, yeah, some lame that happened? Well, Kelly Wand, do you resonate more to uh, Dostoevsky or to Paul's epistles? Uh, it's the same question. I mean, that's the question that's being neither. asked. But there are th- right. Okay, that's fine. So you, you can but I like you can opt out of bo- you can opt out of both of those stories. But the point is, there there are different stories. Which do you prefer? You Kelly Wand, you don't know why you were born, and when you're dead, it's going to be senseless, and you will not exist. What yeah. stories are you going to use to carry you between those two points? No, I mean, no, that's the dead. point of religion. Okay, well, that, that's well, the just, point of religion. I feel that's the point of the, of the movie. Uh, and I, I'm I, saying, huh? if, like, what if the truth is the best story? Like, what if, what if we live in a in a universe without 
meaning. I think that's a horrible story, and that's uh, no, that's relaxing. Okay, personal. Well, isn't the point then that that the truth doesn't matter? It's the story that matters. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, exactly. It's 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 but all about all storytelling. Cool. And then that's the thing is that I think Life of Pi is about storytelling. Um, yeah. And that's that's uh, kind of the problem, I, and th- and this is why I love hearing you talk about this, Tom, because uh, the way I be, uh, the, the way religion shaped my life was more out of from a context of fear. This is why you have to do this right. uh, because of fear, not because of the beautiful um, elements of storytelling, which is I think the way the character gets introduced to these different characters. Uh, characters being gods, and the way you get you, Tom, got introduced or introduced yourself to different elements of religion, which I think is a very beautiful thing. Um, but from my frame of reverence, it's much more was was much more about uh, fear and stark reality. Um, and so, watching this from that point of view, that's why I use the word facile, because it seems like. You know, oh, I found this religion. Oh, I found that religion. I'm going to dabble here. I'm going to dabble there. And then when we get to the end, um, yeah, I was a murderer, but it was really only out of revenge. So who can blame me? Uh, and da da da. So it, it, I, I love what you're saying. I just, I didn't, I couldn't see it from that. Point. Let me, let me just say, Dingus, that uh, evangelical Christianity is a hell of a thing. Yeah, it certainly is. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I agree with the first part. <laughs> Uh, and also, I, I do want to talk a bit about the movie as a uh, as a survival procedural, a la Castaway, <laughs> but replace a volleyball with a CG tiger. I mean, come on, didn't that stuff work for you guys? If it was real, but it wasn't giving us real tips, it's actually a hunchback <laughs> or subconscious. I, but so I love, though, that it plays with this idea. I mean, you kind of realize he's an unreliable narrator as soon as he's reading the parts in the book about being stranded in a lifeboat yeah, with a and if you're stranded with a carnivore then yeah <laughs> yeah and what i love about this is that he's in an ocean where every fish including whale sharks swim at the surface no yeah. that 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 right luminous now. that that's that whale by the way that whale was real dick no no uh, not the whale i'm, I'm talking anytime <laughs> they showed an overhead shot there was one shot of just every fish in the ocean including a whale shark Right. We're swimming at the surface of the water, and you could just stab them or catch them in the net. There was never any problem with getting fish. So and Dingus, if, they, if there was a problem, they would just jump in the boat. <laughs> Dingus, I don't know if you know this, but most fish do, actually. They, they rely on uh, the, the a, a level of life in the ocean is, is very dependent on how deep sunlight can penetrate. So mm-hmm. most fish actually do, because that's because of how photosynthesis works, that's where the baseline a nerd alert. food pyramid it exists. <laughs> yes, Tom. Fascinating. Hey, uh, I liked it, the survival manual when it was saying, uh, if you get bored, uh, don't go crazy, play 20 questions. And tell stories and sing songs. So, yeah, like, what if you're alone? 20 questions is kind of boring, isn't it? You would have to cheat, I guess. You would have to write the answer down and not look at it. And, and the other one it suggested was I Spy. He's in the middle of the ocean, although he is in a CG ocean. With one thing I loved was I was just sitting there going, "You're going to keep all of your all of your foodstuffs on that raft, yeah, really." I know. And then he, what and if then he goes? And then he goes, "Idiot!" And I was like, "All right." That's fine. Uh, and that so, was pretty stupid, though. Like, what the fuck? It was but so he, he called himself an idiot. So yeah, that's, he knew, and uh, so he didn't have to go constantly do, you know, runs to put himself in danger of the tiger to get his food. So uh, God made him do that. Put your stuff over there on the food pyramid Tom just referenced. Tell you one, as, as Jonah will tell you, sometimes big fish are God instruments. 
Oh, so you got eaten by it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so who here saw it in, in 3D? I accidentally saw it in 3D. Yeah, it was great. Dingus, did you did you take the, did you see a movie in 3D? No, I did not. Aha! See, because I'm kind of with Kelly Wand. I I was so mad when I went and bought my ticket, and I, it was like way more expensive than normal. And the guy started handing me the glasses, and I I almost was like, wait a minute, I'm going to find this somewhere else. But I was there, I needed to see it. But I I was pretty happy with the 3D. So Kelly Wand, it sounds so, like you were so as good well. about it. Kelly yeah, Wand, but- why don't you explain what was so good about it, Kelly Wand? Well, I had some. I got really baked, and then I sat down. <laughs> Uh, so Dingus, uh, I would say a lot of the, um, so the, the, the shipwreck <laughs> stuff, which you didn't like, I really like the 3d there with the waves and with the water, uh, they had, uh, the, that luminous ocean sequence was pretty awesome in three, yeah. even little touches. Like it, there was some awful stuff and I know Dingus, like the tiger lunging at the camera and that's that point of view from behind the stick stuff was just terrible. <laughs> That I hated, but there were these great little touches, like when when he's looking at the comic book about uh, Krishna eating the the dirt and opening his mouth and seeing the universe. They did really cool layered stuff there, where you go into the comic book and it's got layers, um, and certainly the the trippy dream sequence with the squid and the whale breaking up into the zoo animals. Um, it just was some really nice use of of 3D. That for the most part. There were instances of this, but for the most part, wasn't gratuitous uh, 3D. Um, and it's interesting, by the way, I, I looked this up. Uh, the cinematographer was a guy who, uh, he was a gaffer, and gaffers, if you don't know Hollywood terms, gaffers are basically the guys in charge of lighting. They work under the director of photography. Uh, this guy had been a gaffer on various David Fincher movies, and he was the DP for one of Dingus's favorite movies, uh, Benjamin Button. But he was also the director of photography for Tron, Tron Legacy. Tron Legacy. Right. Which, you know what, say, say what you will about Tron Legacy. It's elaborate cartoon work. Uh, I just felt like this here, whatever he did in Tron Legacy to great excess, he sort of reigned in here and was more reasonable, uh, I thought. So I, I really liked the 3D. I, the theater I saw it in, fortunately, it wasn't dim. It was bright enough. Um and I just thought it was a tasteful use of 3D that wasn't. <laughs> you know, I, I can imagine uh, all those meerkats looking pretty cool in 3D. Uh, yep, meerkats a lot. Of, yeah, a lot of these like vistas and things. Maybe like ravenous. Yeah. I also, by the way, this is kind of odd. My theater. So I've got a rinky-dink theater that I go to here. They recently completely tore out all of the seats. And have put in. I don't know if you guys have heard of this happening anywhere. I talked to the Exercise manager. Bikes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like that thing. So I'm gonna have to suggest that. Uh, no, they they put in these huge, just oversized recliners that kick uh. all the way back. And the, and the thing is, there's so much leg room. You can be kicked all the way back. With, you're 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 reclining. It's like a first class seat in a freaking airplane. You're kicked all the way back with your feet in front of you, and there's and still plenty seats. of room in front of you for people to walk up and down the aisle. And I couldn't believe this. They did this in every theater. I, I talked to the manager afterwards. I was like, well, what did this obviously leaves less room for tickets. How, how much of your capacity did you cut down? She told me they had burned 70% of their capacity. At this theater to put in these seats. Apparently, and she didn't say this, but I'm just guessing, they must have just been hurting so much that they could burn that much capacity to try to do this as a selling point. It's kind of like I'll luxury. Pay 20 seat. for a fucking recliner. That's a great idea. I love it. You pay the same price as any as a oh. ticket, but a theater that used to hold 100 seats now only has 30 of these. So just imagine how much room that gives you. 
Uh, and wow. the funny thing is, they're routinely selling out, of course, because... Right. Uh, so it's so, actually a nightmare. Do so they lift into the heavens and vegetation grows underneath? That's, that's AMC. Uh, what about their black friend who comes with them? <laughs> that's also the AMC theaters. Tom obsesses over. <laughs> uh, Tom, did you, did you have any feelings about the music in this movie? Um, that there were times I was worried the tiger was going to jump out again because I hate jump scares, and the music reassured me. <laughs> there will be no jump scare here. So, so you agreed with the music? I agreed with the music. Uh, did it drive you crazy? Were you unhappy with it? Oh, yeah, it drives me nuts. Not as much as Lincoln's fucking music. God damn. Well, right, of course. That's, uh, the, that movie was ruined by the music for me. Fascinating. Uh, so uh, we know that um, M. Night Shyamalan was attached to this. After that, uh, Alfonso Cuaron was briefly on it. Uh, oh, good Lord. And he went to he instead did Children of Men. Can you imagine? You think that's a good choice, Dickus? <laughs> uh, but then also, uh, uh, Jeunet, how do you say his name? The guy that did Dingsley. Alien Resurrection. Well, I was going to go with Amelie. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't want to be remembered so much for that. Amelie, City of Lost Children. Delicious. Uh, Delicatessen, exactly. Uh, I think that would have been a very different uh, movie. Um, Better? Worse? The same? Well, you know, I so I, Ang Lee has done... I, I noticed... Um, no, I, I really am glad that Ang Lee did this because, you know, he did that silly Hulk, that Art House Hulk movie, and you saw him playing with this idea of comic book panels, and, uh, like, visually it was intriguing, but I just don't want to watch a goofy Art House Hulk movie. So, uh, I... I, no, I, I really... um, poodles are not art house. <laughs> Please continue your point. Uh, I, I was just glad that Ang Lee did this. I, I really thought that uh, I really appreciated what he brought to it. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, Dingus, how did you feel about the direction? Did you feel that Ang Lee is this, is this a plus? I, I'm assuming actually because you didn't like it, this would go in the minus column for Ang Lee movies for you. Mm. It, it really uh-huh. would. Um, you know, part of part of what you're saying is. Uh, is giving me food for thought, realizing that I, I missed some things. But I, I just sat there thinking, what are you doing? If this is a book club book that you're spinning your wheels on. Because, I mean, I love Crouching Tiger. I love Brokeback. Uh, and those feel like they have substance. And to me, this doesn't feel like that. As, as much as, you, as you've had to say about how you feel about how religion plays out in the end, it still feels like a facile message to me at the end. Okay. But, but you know, again, I, I come to religion from a different frame of reference. How does this compare, Dingus, to Lust Caution? Uh, it has less punctuation. One, two, three, not only uh, it's me, got one name, you know, reels, and I'm calling in between, counting one, two, three, be one, two, You had your chance. You had your chance. I had a Brent Ratner in the chamber. All right. <laughs> I can't believe that Dingus. I can't believe Dingus. You know, there's a comma between lust and caution. Why do you know that? <laughs> Who does? Very upset. What was your podcast already? What was your Brett Ratner reference, Kelly? On I do hate to miss a good ding on Brett Ratner. Uh, I can't remember now. You're supposed to ask me what if he had like who would you have wanted it to direct it, and then I would have said Brett Ratner, and then you would have gone. <laughs> Uh, to, uh, to like, Brett Ratner, Life of Pi. That would have been awesome. I did notice there was a uh, poster, and let me see. I'm going to go ahead and fix the price of this at. I will put it at twenty bucks. There's a poster for Dwayne Johnson and Mark Wahlberg 
in Michael Bay's next movie. And I think it's called like Guts and Glory, or no, Pain and Gain. And it's got a big old picture of like protein powder and a weightlifter's arm uh, on the front of it. I was <laughs> out before you said Michael Bay. <laughs> so, uh, wait, let's go. Well, let's do. Speaking of religion, Dingus, uh, what is this week's three by three? <laughs> that's so, not you, what I mean by Michael Bay, uh, The Rock, and Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> what is this week's topic? I knew, I, did you take that as epiphany? Is that what? Oh, Jesus! Planet of the Apes. Mark Wahlberg had an epiphany when he realized when he saw Lincoln, ape Lincoln. Was, this is not the epiphany. All right, these are your three favorite movie character epiphanies. Mm-hmm. Not the religious kind, and this, and one this, that, this, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, go ahead. Well, just in case people missed it, what was the example of an epiphany that you gave me and Kelly Wand last week? Yeah. Well, the one I gave you and Kelly Wand was inspired by Kelly bringing up Star Wars, and that's when Han Solo mm. yeah. is is uh, you know cradling Leia in his arms and telling her at, in Return of the Jedi that it, when he's sure Luke wasn't on the Death Star when it exploded, and uh, she says, "I know he wasn't," and and Han says, "Well, when he gets back, I will get in the way," and she says. You know, he's my brother, and on you see that look on his face, like, oh, now I get it. So it's that now I get it moment. Now, Kelly Wand, why is that not an epiphany? <laughs> I was just realizing she is suddenly telepathic and knows when he's not, when Luke's not dead on the Death Star, even though in the other two movies she never. That's went. not oh. suddenly in in Empire. She knows he's hanging off a of Bespin. How dare you? I uh, but still, in the first movie, she would have. She should have gone, oh, look, it's the short stormtrooper. We're clearly related, because I'm short, or something. It was a boring conversation, anyway. Every conversation's boring, isn't it, Dingus? Well, as Kelly Wan pointed out last week, that was uh, Han Solo being told something. Uh, I'm not sure that one person telling someone else is necessarily an epiphany. You could take a different, you could take a liberal uh, definition of epiphany. And, uh, so. No, it's like the epiphany is is realizing it so he didn't realize she'd said the words till he heard them and then 10 more seconds have passed and then the epiphany <laughs> yeah well i cannot wait to hear what you do then with the, this three by three kelly wand so i actually tried to take the term kind of serious well we'll see uh you guys might not like mine uh these are weird but uh kelly wand you are going first since you're introducing next week's Uh-oh. three by three so what is your number three choice for a favorite movie epiphany I have a really exciting theme for my three. It's that they all start with the letter C. Mm. My number three epiphany choice for the topic this week is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. When... (laughs) So many epiphanies in that movie. But my favorite was when he tore the top off the volcano and went oh, oh that's what i was trying to do for weeks and months like the aliens forgot to tell him the top was flat or maybe it was uh, like, kelly one is that the one he made with mashed potatoes or a different one no the mashed potato one is still fucked up <laughs> but i thought it was either a photo in his mind that they'd crop the top of off because they just ran out of room because his mind was too small because he was just uh, you know all right, anyway. so a, a Close Encounters Epiphany. Uh, what is that? What is that mountain called, Kelly Wand, in Wyoming? Devil's Tower, right. but it's in Oregon for in RL. It's in Oregon. Where did I get Wyoming? Where's Mount Rushmore? Is that Wyoming? That mothership still would have been big enough to see. 
Okay, one of the Dakotas. All right, what's in Wyoming then? What what famous uh, edifice is in Wyoming? Anyone? It's, uh, Mitt Romney. Uh, Dick no way. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right, so uh, Kelly Wong, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The that's uh, what John Pasale wanted to go in the plane in Dog Day Afternoon, Wyoming, and that made Al Pacino laugh. Is that true? Saying, oh, I like that. I like that, Kelly Wong. See, good. Okay, my number three epiphany is uh, a movie that uh, I'm still I'm still so upset with Dingus uh, that okay, I'm going to give you guys a line. So the lines that I'm going to give you each time correlate with the epiphany, like they they occur at the moment of the epiphany. This is the line that's said during the epiphany. Here's the line. Ready? Everything the circus thinks is gold is shit. Oh, did you just have an epiphany, Kelly Wand? Yeah, I did. <laughs> Do you know it? Because I'm so upset um, with Dingus for this movie. Because he didn't get it. Well, no, I understand. He just wasn't it. Well, not that he didn't get it. He almost waved us off of it. And you know what? I respect I that. Apologize. I have apologized. I know, I know Dingus. I, know. I just need How to be. How many times can I apologize for not getting this movie? Infinite? Uh, remember when we had to explain to him the car thing? How about Infinite plus just- uh, I apologize again for not getting this movie. God no, Dingus, I, I so appreciate anybody who would wave me off of a movie, even if they're wrong. So thank you for that. Uh, but I still, I just went back and watched part of this. I still so love this movie. So normally when you have a mystery, the epiphany moment where the detective solves everything, uh, generally it's kind of heightened the way it's shot or the realization or the performance or whatever. So in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, uh, which is so almost fatally understated for, for some people. And Dingus, I, I know that wasn't necessarily one of your complaints, but I can see some people not getting into this movie. It's just such a subtle, dense, dark, uh, in ways dim movie. Uh, that, that Gary Oldman's moment where he pieces everything together, it's preceded by all these shots of the different suspects, like looking at the camera, looking at him, and there's a there's a sort of a dolly in on his face as he's sort of thinking about things. And he's listening to... Uh, uh, a tape of of uh, some people being uh, interviewed, like a sort of deposition or whatever, but so, so some surveillance tape. He's listening to it, and the line uh, "Everything the circus thinks is gold is shit" is about the circus being MI5, uh, and it's about the intelligence they've been fed. As he hears this line, as he's thinking, he realizes something. He has an epiphany about what's going on. The next scene will be him explaining this to the relevant people. But the way this scene is shot, it's shot from behind. You just see the ear, the earphones on him. You just see the back of his head. And the moment of realization, he hears this, and he just tilts his head, not even tilts it, turns his head ever so slightly to the left. Uh, and that's it. It's just it's this subtle, quiet, just almost imperceptible moment. Uh, and I love that in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. He tilts his head to the left. He doesn't tilt his head. He turns it a little bit. Turns it. Yeah. Turns no, his I, head can, to I, can, I can see that moment in my head. So that, that, that's a great choice. I can actually see what you're talking about in my head. So it's now a what, right hemisphere connection. What they also do, and this this is probably about as excessive as the movie gets in terms of being heavy-handed. Uh, I don't think you could accuse this movie of being heavy-handed. This might be one exception. Is the place where he's working, this new office where they've set up, because it can't be at MI5 because it's to try to find a mole there. Uh, it's near a, a railway s- switching station. So <laughs> Thomas Alfredson, the director, inserts a shot of train tracks being switched to a different rail. <laughs> 
was to, I guess, represent a scene ah. or getting on the right track or ah, right. It's a fairly ham-handed visual metaphor. He's walking past an electric company, and then the light bulb icon turns on <laughs> over his head as he walks past. <laughs> and vacation Eureka, California, panning for gold. Ah, very good, Kelly One. Kill Kelly One. So there's my number three, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. The uh, the and it's not even him solving the major mystery. It's just like one piece of the puzzle. Uh, not enough CG for Dingus to like it. <laughs> <laughs> Dingus, we'll give you grief for Avatar later. Is that okay? What if they add? Like, you, you can actually give me grief for, for my number three because it's the uh, cheesy version of what you just said. Oh, okay. Well, g- give me a line from it. All right, here it is. After that, my guess is you'll never hear from them again. Can I hate that, quotes. Is that in he always does. What? Is Midnight Run? <sighs> it's so weird because it's like he, if it's Midnight Run, it's it's, an, it's the most it's the only obscure line from a movie that we know. Really. Like it's a Star Wars line. See, right? the thing about Dingus' lines though is that once he tells you what it's from, there's this kind of aha moment. So even if I'm convinced it's a horrible line when he's saying it, he normally kind of shows me up. Like he then says the movie, and I'm like, oh yeah, that is a good line. All right, let, let me give you another line. Here, okay, here's yeah. the line that comes right after. Now listen, listen, because there's some foley work in this. <laughs> Here you go, and like that. He's oh, gone. oh, uh, 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 is, it, is it usual suspects? Yes, usual right. suspects. Yeah. So uh, it's the uh, the last uh, the last moment where. Um, oh, that is good. Yeah. Where Karan. Uh, is that his name? Is that the name of the? Is that the name of uh, Chaz Palminteri's character, Detective Karan? It's Kuyan. Kuyan. Where Kuyan is looking at the at the bulletin board and Dan Hadaya is going off on why his desk is so messy after uh Kuyan has left has let verbal Kent out of the um leave <laughs> leave the interrogation and he feels so good about himself, Kuyan. He feels like he's broken verbal Kent, he's let him go. Uh he has uh, Kent hasn't uh turned state's evidence, but he's gonna be in trouble because of course um Jesus, what's uh, what's Gabriel Byrne's character? I can't remember, but he thinks that Gabriel Byrne's character is going to be out to kill him, so he thinks he's in really good space, and he's sitting there at the bulletin board, and he sees that quartet at the bottom of the bulletin board that was made in Skokie, Illinois, and then all the pieces start to come together, and he drops his mug, and of course it says uh, Kobayashi on the bottom of the mug. So it's that... That okay, most. so Dingus, I have a. Why do you call that cheesy? The cheesy equivalent, because that, of course, that's, is a, that's probably that's like an iconic, famous epiphany. And do you, do you really mean it? Do you really mean it's cheesy, or? Well, well, based against your subtle, like okay. uh, Gary Oldman tilting his head. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I and I'm so, I, I love I love Usual Suspect, but we have a friend named Jeffy who hates that yeah. movie with a passion. And every time I've watched it after that, I've kind of been colored by that hatred. Uh, because if if you watch that last scene, it is a little bit cheesy, but I still love that realization where where uh, Chesmo Palminteri sits on the desk and pieces it all together in that one moment. I mean, like, is once things become so iconic though, and they become like lampooned, and yeah. I, I wonder if that kind of just just remember seeing that for the first time. Uh, yeah, you know, like like right. six, like you know, Bruce Willis is a ghost, six cents. You know, that's cheesy, but. I think it's just because it was so effective that it became so famous and, and became so popular and was just kind of iterated on. Um, but that's a great choice, Dingus. Uh, I, I'm jealous. Kelly Wan, did we? Did you not have Usual Suspects in yours? Uh, I forgot about it. It's like you said, yeah. it's so big it's invisible, like in a G.K. Chesterton way. 
Yeah. Very good, Dingus. All right. Thank you. Kelly Wan, can you give us a line? While I watched that afterwards, like it was one of those things where while I watched it, I go, oh, that's pretty clever. And then afterwards, I was going, wait, he didn't go, hey, wait a minute, where have I heard all this shit before? Oh, yeah, every day at work, like, <laughs> for years, it's right behind me. Like, it seems really risky of Kevin Spacey to go. Because he can see it better than Chaz can. Like, he can see the whole board from all the way across the desk. Why does uh, he just make a phone name? Seems like if, if everybody did that, everyone would get caught super quick. That's why you interrogate suspects in featureless rooms. Unusual suspects. <laughs> Kelly Wan, give us a line from your number two pick for a favorite epiphany. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, why don't you take that piece of shit back to the junkyard? <laughs> Is it a Herbie movie? Okay, and a cannibal run. Uh, <laughs> Reynolds is driving an ambulance with Dom DeLuise and Farrah Fawcett and Jack Elam and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. pulls up alongside him in a Ferrari and they're disguised as priests and he's all, hey, pull over, I want to bless you which seems weird to me because it's like he, I thought they knew each other so it's odd that Burt Reynolds doesn't seem to recognize him but then uh, they get out and Sammy Davis Jr. like pretends to bless them while Dean Martin like lets the air out. No, wait, it's the other way around. Sammy Davis lets the air out because he's black, and the white and Dean Martin blesses them, and then uh, they drive off. And then Burt Reynolds is all, oh, "Oh, we got a flat. They weren't fathers. They were." And then Dumb Dillies goes, "Mothers." <laughs> so that's where he re- realizes. Dingus, does that qualify as an epiphany? I don't know what the epiphany was. <laughs> Dom Delaware is realizing that they weren't real priests, even though. I think sometimes an epiphany is also a punchline. So that's Not, what we've just seen here. Yeah. Or in usual suspects, it's a punchline without a line. Speaking of punching, I'm going to give you, you guys a line from my number two pick for a favorite movie epiphany. You ready for this? <laughs> go ahead. Here we go. Could I call you back? Could I ask your extension and your name, possibly? Uh, Is that Punch Drunk Love? Very good, Dingus. Uh, Why would you get that? I, I was going to say that, too, so I want credit. Jesus, Dingus and oh, Kelly Wand. Why would you want to epiphany? That? Well, you gave All us right. a hint. This, to this is a, that's true. That's true. So this isn't really – I don't think the average person would think of this as an epiphany, and I wouldn't either, except that I have a very, very remote connection to the making of the movie in that – I went to school with a guy who worked at um, at Skywalker Ranch on sound, and he became sort of the head of their sound department for a while. Uh, this guy was uh, – and, and Dingus, you mentioned our friend Jeffy. This guy, uh, Glenn, was in the same circle. Uh, I, I once uh, uh, was talking to Glenn uh, about Punch Drunk Love, and he had worked on it. He had worked with Paul Thomas Anderson because they did the sound at Skywalker Ranch. And Glenn said something to me about how – it, he even he just dropped a mention of it about the the alien noise in the movie that he, that that they came up with at Skywalker Sound that Paul Thomas Anderson was asking for and did I catch it and I was like what what on earth are you talking about and he was like yeah the movie starts with him hearing aliens 
it's like, whatever, you don't know what you're talking about. And then I went back and watched the movie and I, I wished I could, I, you know, I haven't, I don't see Glenn regularly. I wished I could talk to him more about this. I don't think Paul Thomas Anderson has talked about this. So it sounds like something he just said to his sound guy to inspire this moment. And sure enough, if you watch Punch Drunk Love, it opens with uh, Barry Egan, I think is his name, with, with uh, Adam Sandler on the phone, and you later discover in the course of the movie that he's sussing out this deal that Healthy Choice Foods has done with with mileage where he could make money by buying pudding. Uh, it's, it was kind of the, the seeds for the movie. Paul Thomas Anderson read about somebody who had discovered this loophole and made a bunch of money from Healthy Choice, and that became sort of the basis for Barry Egan. So the opening of the movie is Barry Egan on the phone with Healthy Choice, asking about this, and you don't know what's going on, and you hear a noise, like a, a high-tension wire being plucked. And he said, he hears it, and he reacts to it. And he says to the guy, can I call you back? Uh, could I ask your extension a name, possibly? And then he hangs up, and he walks out, presumably to see what noise he heard, and that's where the movie kicks off with a car wreck and a little piano being dropped off at the side of the, the, the driveway, and then later on, Emily Watson reacts to it, and it's, they, they sort of connect talking about it, um, but the impetus for the movie, for everything that happens in the movie, is this one little plucking string sound that Paul Thomas Anderson apparently expressed to his sound guy as, an, as aliens making a noise. Um, so I, I, that's obviously not, there's no internal support that aliens are involved, but there is a weird noise that opens Punch Drunk Love that causes him to see the car wreck and to see the piano that he'll later talk to Emily Watson about. So I that's for most of that, you were talking about the alien aliens, and it opens with Adam Sandler talking to, like, Veronica Cartwright's arch nemesis. I do not think they feature into the movie that I know of. But you know what? Maybe Paul Thomas Anderson would have some insight into so that. But it's just a string. What is, I, I'm not, I, I know we've talked about this this theory that, that there are alien sounds sort of as, I don't know if you call them transition points or musical segues. Um, and I, I thought at one point that you said you just didn't see it. So what is the actual epiphany that you're saying? The actual epiphany is there is some noise that has come from some, some external source. Like an epiphany literally means like something that uh, I, I think like, like an understanding from within. It's not some, right. something that somebody tells you. And a lot of times it has a religious connotation, like God has put an understanding inside of you. So there's this this sound that he hears in his head that causes him to walk to this place and look down this driveway. So I think whatever Paul Thomas Anderson was getting at, and I don't think it's aliens, I don't even think it's religion, I think it's like, we've got to open this movie with a deus ex machina, let's do that and get it out of the way. I think that's what this sound is, this kind of weird epiphany that, hey, I need to go look out here where this car is going to wreck and this piano is going to get dropped off. And Paul Thomas Anderson was just, you know what, we're going to make a noise and it's going to be this this aural realization that Barry Egan has. Uh, and I don't, I, you know, I'm as puzzled as anyone by it. Uh, right. But By the way, there. is that is that a piano? <laughs> it's a very small piano. What is it? Come on. Uh, a fortissimo. Well, what is the it? Harmonium. A harmonium. Thank you, Dingus. Yes, very good. <laughs> huh. I thought right. it was just the piano making the noise. Like he's talking. Well, it's about. not there yet. It's not there yet. He goes out and he looks out at the street and sees the wreck, and then a cab pulls up. The door opens. Someone puts the piano down, and then the cab drives off. So when that noise is made, the piano has not yet arrived. See? And it's clearly not a musical instrument. It really does sound like a high-tension wire that's plucked. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. What are you it's supposed there. to think it is? I don't know. It's there. It's unmistakable. I mean, John, is it John Bryan? Is that the guy that did the, the music? And like the, the music and the sound design, even the lighting, like all that stuff is just so stylized and such a like a, a part of Barry Egan's sort of mental outlook, his consciousness. Uh, so who, who knows? I don't I mean, know if you knew this. The weird black screen color transition. Yep. They yep. do. Yeah. Weird kaleidoscopy things. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but the monolith in 2001 is actually supposed to be a, a black piano key. <laughs> I kind of believe that, Kelly Wand. I, will like you say a, that? Instrument from God's. I, I want to believe that, Kelly Wand. It all makes sense now. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I'm not going to go that far. Oh. Dingus, give us a line from your number two pick for a favorite epiphany. Uh, okay. My line is wow. Oh, is the next line, I know Kung Fu? It's not. That's Bo. Oh, good point. Were you trolling me? How dare you? Uh, I don't know. I'm going to need uh, a... All right, you're not going to get this. Uh, no, neither of you will. Uh, this is uh, a movie I've used for uh, for other ones before. I feel like I'm cheating a little bit because I used it for reaction shots, but I love this for epiphanies. And this is from a 1954 movie called On the Waterfront. And um, the moment from this movie is when uh, Marlon Brando is sitting in the back seat of the car with his brother, played by Rod Steiger, and uh, and and Charlie. They're they're going to they're going somewhere, and it, it becomes clear that um, that Charlie has been the one who has set him up for a fall. And the moment where Brando realizes this, uh, you know, Charlie tells him, "Till we get to blah 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 blah." He gives him an address, and uh, and when Brando hears him say this address, he just and and when Charlie pulls a gun on him, Brando sits back and just goes, "Wow!" And this this look, uh, the way he says, Dingus, wow. do the voice. Let's do it. Let's we let's hear it. Come on. He's better than Brando the way he does it. Yeah, he says, uh, uh, "I swallowed a bug." Um, the, the way he drop my pipe. <laughs> till till we get till we get where Charlie till we get where. All right. So when he uh. when he says when he talks about when he says that you you just see this, this amazing universe of things go over Brando's face. That was what it was what was amazing about Brando. I remember being in in the first one of the first professional theater jobs I ever had, and the guy playing King Arthur was just blah 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 Brando blah blah blah, and and I was a college kid and I was like what that's my favorite line from the King Arthur. <laughs> What's the big deal with Brando? And the guy's like, he's just real. You don't see any seams. There's no seams in his work. And then if you really watch on the waterfront, you watch this scene where, where Marlon Brando has this realization that his brother's the one who sold him down the river. And all of this goes over his face in, in the span of maybe a couple of seconds. And it's just like that. Um, that, that epiphany where he realizes his, his brother is the one that has ruined his life uh, is one of my favorite epiphanies in film. So there you go. Kelly the, the moment where Brando says, wow. Kelly Wan, should I see uh, on the waterfront? I always get that one mixed up with a waterfront named Desire. <laughs> or a waterfront on a hot tin roof. <laughs> uh, all right, Kelly Wan, we can he hear you chewing, so please do not eat under the microphone. But oh, we would like you to tell us your number one pick for uh, a favorite movie epiphany. My number one pick is in Caveman, <laughs> which is when... <laughs> Ringo Starr uh, picks up Barbara Bach and carries her over triumphantly after he beats uh, the football player, caveman. And then, but then he throws her in the mud. And then Shillong's like, "Oh, he likes me. He didn't, because that's how you know." And you knew back then, like a guy likes you, because when he drops a hotter chick in the mud, 
like he likes you. So that's her epiphany. So then she joins him, becomes queen of the cave people. So the the queen of the cave people's epiphany. That's that's how you would distill it. Yeah, Shelley Long, typecast forever as a cave woman. Shelley Long, and yeah. all right, a little uh, Cro Magnon sexual politics. All right, I'm going to give you guys a line now from my... This is going to be... I apologize in advance. It's going to be a little desultory, um, but bear with me. Let me give you the line. I had an inkling. I had a flash. I suddenly thought I knew what it was that had killed Marilyn Monroe. So does that ring a bell for anyone, that line? Does that mean anything? Because I think if you know the movie, you would know the line. And it's kind of cheating. It's not even really a movie. Uh, I know it's one of the alien movies, but I forget which one. So okay, so uh, so here we go. This is again. Bear with me. Um, Back in the seventies, in the the chaos of the the Vietnam War, you know, Southeast Asia was incredibly unstable. Uh, In in Cambodia, this this radical communist group uh, called the Khmer Rouge had attached a former king. Uh, to their cause, and they gained popular support in the countryside. Uh, and uh, in 1975, they surrounded Phnom Penh, the capital, uh, and they took over Cambodia. Now, in Phnom Penh at that time, there was a New York Times journalist named Sidney Schonberg. I hope I'm not screwing that up. Uh, and he'd been covering Southeast Asia with a Cambodian journalist named Dith Pran. And with the Khmer Rouge took over... Uh, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty in Cambodia. What were these this new radical group? What were they going to do? They were hardcore communists. Um, so a lot of Cambodian citizens holed up in various embassies. And uh, Sidney Schomburg and Dith Pran hid in the French embassy. Uh, and at some point, the Khmer Rouge demanded that all Cambodian nationals be ejected from the embassies. And the embassies didn't have much choice but to comply or, or, or they would, they might have been overrun. So this fella, Dith Pran, who was an educated Cambodian journalist, he was handed over to the Khmer Rouge. Uh, foreign journalists were basically ejected from the country. Sidney Schomburg uh, left, and over the next four years, uh, he remembered with no small amount of guilt what must be happening to Dith Pran as we started finding out more about the, the utter insanity of the Khmer Rouge. Uh, and I think everybody knows of their leader, Pol Pot, as one of the perpetrators of the worst genocides of the 20th century. Uh, these guys, the Khmer Rouge, made the Taliban look rational. Uh, the, the only reason they don't rival the Nazis and as far as the terribleness of what they did is they didn't have the ruthless efficiency of the Nazis because they were so freaking batshit insane. The, the Khmer Rouge emptied out the cities. They tried to eradicate all class. They, they, they abolished money. Uh, they just mass executions. These guys were nuts. And they were so nuts. The best thing about them being nuts is they were going to burn out and do something stupid. They were incapable of running a country. So after about four years, they made the mistake of thinking, hey, let's attack Vietnam. And Vietnam, now run by the communists that had kicked us out of the country, Vietnam wanted no part of that. So Vietnam basically proceeded to kick the Cambodians out of power. They drove them into the hills over many, many years. Uh, They were basically partisans in the hills. Uh, Cambodia was just devastated by four years of rule under the Khmer Rouge. And in 1979, out of this 
this this chaos that uh, the the Khmer Rouge had perpetrated, this fellow Dithpran emerged. He had survived these four years. He escaped uh, the country. He was reunited with Sidney Schonberg. Uh, who then wrote a book about Dithpran's odyssey over those four years. And the book uh, was then made into a movie two years mm. later by uh, Roland Joffe called The Killing Fields. So that's only the first part of this little story. Because in this movie, The Killing Fields, uh, a theater actor who was working in experimental theater on this format known as monologues, was cast in a little tiny part as, a, as an embassy bureaucrat. A fellow named Spalding Gray had a teeny part in The Killing Fields, which Roland Joffe shot in Thailand. So Spalding Gray flies over to Thailand. He does his little bitty part in The Killing Fields. And then he comes home and he writes a monologue. You know, Spalding Gray's uh, sort of chosen form of theater was to sit at a table with a glass of water and a notebook and to just tell stories. You know, the notebook was basically his diary and he would refer to it and he would tell stories about his life. So after shooting this small part in the killing fields, he comes back and he does a monologue called Swimming to Cambodia where he talks about his experience in Thailand shooting the killing fields. And Swimming to Cambodia is this uh, is kind of a story about the intersection of the chaos of Southeast Asia and the sort of madness of Hollywood, the filmmaking process. And it is Spalding Gray's observation of this. Uh, in 1987, um, Jonathan Demme shot this as a movie. Uh, and I saw it as a kid. Uh, and Spalding Gray was just... A, he was just an amazing storyteller to me. And, you know, I think back even to a little bit of, of Life of Pi, you know, Life of Pi being about the impact of storytelling. One of the, the most impactful stories I heard as a kid was, was Spalding Gray. Just that, that man's just observations. Uh, he, he's, he's funny. He's poignant. He's neurotic. He's existential. Uh, I love Spalding Gray. And that started with Swimming to Cambodia. And Swimming to Cambodia ends with him getting on an airplane after shooting uh, in Thailand and going home uh, to the United States. And the, the final line of the monologue is, I had an inkling, I had a flash. I suddenly thought I knew what it was that had killed Marilyn Monroe. And then after that line, Laurie Anderson did the music for it, and it's this kind of dirge with an accordion. The music started, and I never understood that as a kid. I was like, what, what does that mean? I don't understand. I knew who Marilyn Monroe was. I knew what had happened to her, but I didn't understand why he ended his story with that line. Uh, you know, why was that an epiphany for him? And the, I guess, final chapter of this story is that 20 years later, Spalding Gray would, would throw himself from a ferry, a Staten Island ferry, and commit suicide. Um, yeah. and, and he was missing for months before they found his body. But, but whatever was plaguing – I mean, it's, it's a, a story of Hollywood, and it ends in, uh, in, in depression and in suicide. Uh, and, and that moment to me now, when I think about it, is just so, so poignant. You know, whatever epiphany he was referring to at the end of Swimming to Cambodia um, – the, the meaning behind that. Uh, well, maybe I, he was wrong. We don't know if he doesn't say it. It's like a lost in translation thing, isn't it? Well, it is. You know, yeah. You know, we don't really know what the epiphany is. We don't know why Marilyn Monroe. He was 20 years away from that suicide when he said that line. So they may be completely unconnected. But I like your. Connection. Well, I, I mean, I do think. I mean, he's a Spalding Gray. If you can't really 
listen to his monologues and not see that he's there's this oh. sort of tortured genius to him. Uh, yeah, I saw him live in Palos Verdes once. It was like Monster in a Box. And yeah, he that like right. three thousand page. Novel. And that's that's about it. By the way, that's about his mother's suicide. You know, there, there's right. definitely a family history uh, there. And then he gets an eye something or other, like a medical issue with his eye. And that he obsesses on that. I don't know. But it's like if you're a monologue, what else are you going to, like if something like that happens to you, you're going to write about it for years, aren't you? Right. Huh. All right, so there's uh, my my number one pick is whatever he was referring to. The uh, We don't know that it was a real epiphany, though. We're just assuming, it, like, maybe it wasn't, it was just part of that set. Uh, well, when I hear Epiphany, I just think of his the way he chose to close Swimming to Cambodia with this unspoken epiphany about uh, someone who went through the Hollywood machinery and then committed suicide. You know, and actually, he wasn't like a product of, of Hollywood. Like, he was very much like New York. Yeah, yeah. He was very East Coast. But just this whole idea of being on stage. I mean, this whole idea of being a storyteller, an entertainer, and a, something of a celebrity. I mean, you're right. He was no Marilyn Monroe. Um but did he ever, like, if that's the last line of that monologue, and it was like his big thing, like no one ever asked him, what was the thing with the monologue? He didn't tell. <laughs> that sounds like the kind of question that an author would be loath to answer. It's kind of like, you know what, um, figure out your own interpretation. Uh, we don't have Rafe Spall here to explain it to us. <laughs> but it's like, I thought Infinite Jest didn't make any sense. But then, and then that guy killed himself. Dude, Foster Wallace killed himself. And then, like, some dude, like, on the internet, like, just breaks it down. It's like, oh. That's obviously what it meant. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe there is some uh, exegesis. So if you understand the end of so many Cambodia, put it on the forum. <laughs> Let us know. All right, so Dingus, that leaves. What is your number one choice for an epiphany? I like that choice, Tom. It's a good choice. Thank you. Um, I, I couldn't have. Uh, I couldn't have called it up from the quote you gave, but that explanation was excellent. Well, it's kind of obscure, and it's just something I know just because I was sort of haunted by it as a child. I, I can't imagine many people would get that. Uh, so. I, don't remember, I don't remember seeing it in 87. I remember seeing it years later on VHS and being quite affected by it, but you know, thank you. Do you remember the story about the banana by any chance? I think That's, that's the one thing you lied about. Right. What, did, did he suggest that yes, bananas float? <laughs> very good. Uh, the banana does something very different uh, than float. And uh, on that date. All right, so Dingus, what is your number one pick for an epiphany? In a all right, my number Give one. Give us a line. It feels kind of empty after that. I, I really like, I wish you'd gone last. I, I would have liked <laughs> to end on that because I kind of feel like just sitting around and smoking a cigar and talking. <laughs> all right. So, uh, yeah, here's a quote from it. Yeah. Jeez, feels so banal. Now. If <laughs> get it, if you're gonna make if you're gonna make something up, John, be sure that it helps or keep your mouth shut. Like I'm done that. with you. So Dingus did a little hand pat thing there. there. Yeah. I could hear that. He did more foley work, or he was talking um, to us directly. <laughs> Stop. And then the epiphany comes r right after, uh, right before the character says, "How do you know I made that up?" Someone named John is making something up. Sounds Coheny to me. Is it a Terminator? Oh, it does sound Coheny. I was gonna say a Terminator movie, but uh, those are it's Cohen not Coheny. It's it's Mamity. Oh, Tom's cat. <laughs> so it's got to be uh, someone named John makes something up in a David Mamet movie. I don't think there's a John in Glengarry Glen Ross. Is there a John in House of Games? I don't know. There was a Cohen Terminator. <laughs> what? 
Before we talk about that, because I want to hear what that would be like, Kelly Wand. What is it, Dingus? I don't think I recognize it. It, it is indeed Glengarry Glenn Ross. Oh. This is, a, ah. this is another uh, Kevin Spacey moment, although this is his actual realization. And um, and he plays the, the douchebag uh, office manager, who is only the office manager because of nepotism. And um, he's totally screwed up uh, Ricky Roma, who's played by Al Pacino's deal by giving away something because he doesn't understand how sales works and he thinks he's helping. And then he screws up uh, the deal that he, that uh, Ricky Roma has with Jonathan Price's character who runs off. Ricky Roma just eviscerates him for messing up his deal. And then Jack Lemon steps forward or his name's Shelley actually, and just rips him, just tears him apart for not knowing how sales works. But, Shelley tips his hand and says, you shouldn't make something up unless you know what you're talking about. But the reason Shelley knows he's made it up is because Shelley's stolen something. From ah, yeah, that's a good one, actually. That is a good and, one. And then there's a moment where Shelley walks away, and you just see you see this dolt. You see John standing there, and you see it go over his face where his eyes go down. So looks up, and he realizes, oh, there's only one way you would know this. And I love that epiphany. That is a good one, Dingus. Yeah. You've been too hard on yourself. That's an iconic one. He's got all the iconic ones. And they're all it's iconic, but, but I like Tom's because it's obscure, and it's not, I never would have thought of that in a million years. It's really cool. Dingus's took brass balls. <laughs> hey, what about mine, guys? I, I had Caveman, and uh, I forget the other two. <laughs> How about me, Coach? Did I have part? <laughs> Uh, all right, so do we have runners-up or reader submissions? Is it, uh, there's got to be a great uh, Epiphany Dingus in margin call, isn't there? You know, I was thinking about that, and I couldn't come up with it. Why did you bring that up? Because I was thinking about margin call, too. Well, just when you mention Glengarry Glenn Ross, I think of margin call, just as far as being uh, an incredibly thrilling drama about incredibly mundane technical stuff. You know, one's and real I estate. I think there is when, when uh, Zachary Kinto is sort of looking and figuring everything out. Ah, uh, yes, yes, Dingus, exactly. There's got to be some moment. Yeah, do we hear? Is it where, Does he pull earphone, little those little earbuds out of his ears? Is yeah. It where, yeah, I think it's like involves earbuds, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the, uh, the other one, and I didn't want to go with it because I was kind of king off of what you said about it's not really an epiphany if somebody tells you it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there's that moment at the end of The English Patient where he's carrying her and she says, I love you, and that, that look breaks <laughs> over his face. <laughs> not right. so much an epiphany as, as just a tragedy of love. Right. A reaction. Uh, and that's why I think, too, of that. I've, I've talked about that moment with Judy Dinch in Notes for a Scandal, where she has ah. a reaction to what Kate Blanchett said. Like, I don't think of that as an epiphany, but boy, it's one hell of a reaction. Yeah. Anyway, so. uh, I have an, a runner up. Yes, Kelly Wand? In Wild Wild West, Will Smith <laughs> is kissing a chick in a water tower, but he's actually like peeking through a hole at like the bad guys and, and she gets annoyed that he's not making out with her and stops and so for like two minutes he's like he acts like he's still kissing her and he moves his lips and then he eventually realizes that he's not kissing her. Okay, when is this before or after the giant mechanical spider? Uh, that happens to me all the time. <laughs> uh, if that had been called the Quild Quild West, would you have chosen it? Uh, <laughs> don't understand that, but I like it. Wild. Because all of your... Oh, never mind. Oh, with a... Uh, oh. See, that's a, I thought it was a Q in my head. It did sound like a Q-U, yeah. Yeah, yeah my mistake. Uh, 
Take that, troll me. All right, so other runners up, or do we have? Uh, did anyone? Uh, did any listeners have? Uh, and just, we, have we, we do have some listener submissions. All right, what do we got, Dingus? All right, so the first one is from uh, a listener named Jeff Sweet, and he says, "Hey there, for this week's three by three, I'd like to suggest Spider and the Machine." Oh. Whoa, oh, 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 the machinist one also. I love that already. I want to hear about the spider one now. Go ahead, Dingus. Right, well, well you might have to provide this because what he says is um, both films hinge on a major twist but are much more about the main character's realization of it than the twist itself. So you might have to fill this in, Tom. Yeah, I don't remember how Christian Bale realizes what he realizes in – um, the machinist, but I do like that one. How does he? Well, he, to, well, he he he's got that picture, and I think it's a realization at the end when he realizes that he's the guy in the picture, right? I'll say yes. He, you know, sure. he's got the the picture of of this this guy who's a coworker who's a who's a who's a real jerk. Oh, that's what I'm remembering, and it, and it looks like a big guy right. with with huge hair, and and of course he's this completely right right. But I don't know. Is does someone tell him? I don't think anyone tells him this. And Spider, I, I mainly just remember really admiring sort of Cronenberg's restraint in that one, and Ray Fiennes just being weird and creepy. Uh, I don't remember a lot of the specifics of Spider, um, but I think I remember the revelation, which I don't want to spoil. Um, but I like both of those picks, Jeff. So. Oh, what about the end of Martyrs? <laughs> So anyway, Jeff says, by the way, I love I love the podcast. It's always the highlight of my Mondays. And Jeff is a non-of-geist on the forums. Thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, Kelly Wan, boy, that uh, I don't you weren't joking. I mean, I hope you're not. Marty's a great pick. Jeez. See, sometimes I say smart things. If you remember Martyrs, I remember that was on a three by three of movies. I think you hated until the very end. Like it, that was it was yours. That, yeah, it's that final epiphany in Martyrs, which I was like, "Hey, I think I don't hate this movie." <laughs> the movie's all about epiphanies. They're like yeah. trying to breed epiphanies. Spoiler! Right? Hello, you just ruined. Oh, 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 why no one listens to me? <laughs> and no one's going to see Martyr. Listen to how bored Dingus sounds by oh, Martyrs. Great. Well, we've waved. Well, I've been I've been no, waved off of Martyrs, so whenever Dingus. you mention it, I just click tune out. Yeah, Dingus, you're not ready for Martyrs or Human Centipede. Thank you. Um, All right, so uh, Jeff Sweet, that was uh, from Jeff. Any others, Dingus? Yes, uh, Soren Hoogland. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got three picks. So number three, uh, parenthetically, he says, this will be a super hard quote, but don't give the other guys any clues, okay? And the quote is, it's Jackie Brown. Got to be Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> so what Soren says is, Wardell figures out who made off with his retirement fund. He sits there in his car, eyes closed, thinking more than he's used to, and then it dawns on him, I really like the way Tarantino holds the shot for a good 20 seconds or so and simply lets us watch the character work it out. So we're all Jackie Brown fans on this podcast, right? Oh, yeah. 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 It really hits the spot. Mm, it sounds, <laughs> sounds like you're endorsing a fast food restaurant, Kelly Wanda. No, that's what De Niro says after he bangs. Uh... Oh, oh, okay. I see. Hate you people. <laughs> I guess you're the biggest Jackie Brown fan of all, Kelly Wand. Uh, all right, Dingus, what else does Soren have for us? Number two is his quote is, There just ain't no way. Uh, and that's from a country. You guys have any? Uh, it's from No Country for Old Men. Uh, <laughs> a country was the hit. It's from a country, yeah. Llewellyn <laughs> Moss lies down, thinks over what's happened, and realizes. Oh, God, that's 
Oh, sorry. So, sorry, say that again, Dingus. I, I, I... Oh, I'm sure he'll love that reaction. Uh, Luella Moss lies down and thinks over what's happened and realizes Anton Shakur couldn't have been tracking him, not unless there's something besides money in that satchel. It establishes uh, him as a smart, capable man and sets the stage for the fantastic cat-and-mouse shootout that follows. That is such a great moment, too, because it is just a guy sitting there puzzling out. There's got to be something else to this. And then he, that's a that's a great one. Uh, and, and does he say that to himself? There just ain't no way. I think there is. Yeah, yeah. It does sound like he that Josh Brolin does have some verbal outburst. Uh, that sounds about right. Kelly That's McDonald. Awesome. <laughs> somebody, somebody, uh, snapped. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Trancing out. All right. And what's Soren's number one, then? Number one is a movie you both loved. And here's a quote from it. I saw it, and the path was a circle, round and round. So I changed it. It's got to be a looper. The ring. Very good, Tom. Very good. Okay, because Tom loved Looper. <laughs> Tom yeah. did not love Looper. There's no epiphanies in Looper. There's just little no. like, hero boys. Anti-epiphanies. Yeah. So, Lo- Looper, Tom's favorite movie ever. Um, it's Looper and Joe's epiphany about what it takes to break a cycle of violence. Without getting too spoilery, I really like how Ryan Johnson resists over-egging it or dragging things out. All right, so Soren's got two great picks. <laughs> uh, he also says, in parenthetically, he says, I also like how it's an epiphany that leads to a redemption, but don't tell Kelvin. Oh, I'm the... Listen to Tom. <laughs> don't tell Tom. <laughs> Tom's embarrassed because he liked Looper so much. He can't help it. Okay. All right, so the next one is from a listener named Fire. Um, no, it's not. Oh, stop it. Wow. Uh, it's actually, it's actually wish, wishing Kelly Wand a happy birthday. But that was last week, wasn't it? Ah, uh, that's fun. Yeah, this week is Dingus's birthday, just so everyone knows. Tom, it is? damn it. Yeah. Hey, happy birthday. Thank happy, you, happy birthday. Why did Dingus try to suppress my happy birthday wishes from fire? Is he, does he have birthday wish envy? That because this is, is not a this is not a happy birthday podcast. Yeah, every podcast is a happy birthday podcast. You're a happy birthday podcast. Oh, oh. <laughs> all right. The last one is from uh, a listener named Nick, who goes by the handle Cynic. Ah, yes. And his number three is a movie called The Dark Knight. This wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Kelly, one, what would be the epiphany there? Uh, how the Joker got his scars. Hmm. Gotcha. Is it? Is it? It can't be. Is it an epiphany if you see something and oh, realize the Joker inverted the addresses? Is that an epiphany, or that's just realizing, hey, it, that's you know, not that's, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, that's not Harvey Dent. Like, is that an epiphany when you see someone? Or no, that's not Maggie Gyllenhaal. Uh, I don't know. Okay, well, Dingus, what is it? I'm I'm stymied. All right, well, this is what Cynic says. Right. Uh, this epiphany is the moment where Rachel, played by Maggie Gyllenhaal. Here's Harvey Dent shouting over the radio and realizes that no one is going to save her and she is going to die. I love the resignation that Maggie Gyllenhaal portrays here. Great moment. Great moment. I don't know that I'd call it an epiphany. Yeah, you know, I like that moment. But you can see, you see, you can, I can see in her, in my head where her eyes sort of change. You know, it's also, it's fair that it's not somebody telling her something. It's her having a realization based on what she's heard. And yeah, that is a great moment. And boy, I, I just I, anybody who thinks that Maggie Gyllenhaal is not good in that part, I just I rebuke everything you believe. Wow, 
I totally agree with that. <laughs> I agree with the sound effect. And I want to know what Maggie Gyllenhaal thought of Dark Knight Rises for some reason. Well, we'll ask her next week when she's a guest on the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast. Yay! <laughs> I heard that she agrees with the music. <laughs> All right, so that was, uh, that was next, number three. What, what is the average number two? In her there? autopilot didn't work, though, right? All right, so the number two, his number two choice is a movie called Seven, which he spells wrong because it's actually Sezen. Mm, it's it's Seven Zen. Uh, I love, this is him talking, I love Morgan Freeman's reaction when he opens the box at the end of the movie. But I also love that what his character learns is withheld from the audience for a few crucial minutes so that we can't share in the epiphany until the climactic confrontation. Kelly Wand is seeing something in a box in Epiphany. Only if it's just in Timberlake's dick. <laughs> I was thinking okay. more it's only if you're like John Turturro and don't look in the box. Uh, I see what you did <laughs> there. My, you went, okay, I, you are at house. I did the... Uh, <laughs> you went the TV route. Yeah. I did the Cullen Brothers art So house many route. boxes to mark. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Diggis, they what say is, so much about us too. Like that's the differences. True. Yeah, the, you'll reference a Coen Brothers movie, and I'll and you'll choose Caveman as your yes. number one epiphany. Right, right. All right, Diggis, what is Nick's number one epiphany? Number one is from a movie called Adaptation. <gasps> oh, I like where this is going. I like where this is going. All right, so Nick says, after the movie has turned into everything that it swore it wouldn't turn into, chases drugs and Hollywoodishness. Charlie and Donald Kaufman are hiding in the swamp here. Charlie learns something crucial about his brother, which makes him recontextualize his entire approach to life. Quote, because, because his brother tells him. <laughs> you are what you love, not what loves you. If you think they're both, Tom, they're, one of them is clearly imaginary. Did you not read oh, you know the for the three? Very good point. Very good point. <laughs> well taken. Uh, so the quote is, you, you are not what you love. You are what you love, not what loves you. Uh, unquote. Uh, this scene is somehow absolutely cliched, yet still a perfect distillation of how LaRoche, Chris Cooper's character, approaches life and is therefore the exact right message for the book the movie is adapting. That's how much fuck fish. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Those are good, Nick. All right, good. All right, well, Kelly Wand, what 3 by 3 will we be bringing listeners next week that they can participate in? And I'll explain how in a moment. Uh, three best old women. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any questions there. <laughs> Kelly Wand, do you need to set an age range there, or is that open to interpretation? Minimum age 63. <laughs> three best old women. All yeah. right. That's, that was so easy. It's like yeah. you, we asked somebody at the end of the bar, "Hey, <laughs> and that, this is going to sound. It's, this will be uh, in a couple of senses of the word vintage three by three. Awesome. Get it? <laughs> All right. If you have a best old woman, you don't need three. <laughs> uh, email it to us at. But if you have nine, oh, sorry. sorry. Email it to us at three by three. That's three. X3, the number three, the letter X, the number three, at quarter to three.com. Uh, and we will read it next week. We would love to have you on the podcast with us. Uh, so join us for that. Our three best old women. Nobody for yourself. Nobody for yourself, right? Unless you've been in a movie. You can do that. Yeah. yeah. Didn't help that Romney, did it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, join us for that, and we will be seeing next week uh, Killing Them Softly. So see that, and uh, join us for the discussion of that. I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian M- M- Murowski. It's Christian Murowski. Mm, I don't think so. Uh, and Kelly Wand. They can be young men, too. La 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 Uh, Kelly Wand, is there uh, a can anecdote this week? Have you been to the insane asylum with your landlord and his Asian girlfriend? The abandoned and haunted insane asylum. It was too rainy, but someone else was telling me that it's pretty and not. And that also, as you, as Sarah Butterworth wrote, there's. It's not uninhabited by insane, and there are little insane cottages there with insane people. So it's live, but we're going to tell them, we're not here for you. We're here for dead, insane people. All right. All right, so that's not this week's anecdote. then. Is there another anecdote? Yeah, uh, there's cereal up here called Vector. <laughs> and uh, you could just stop there, and I would enjoy it. That's <laughs> good. But go ahead. There's more. I was at the mall, and a fat kid was dragging his dad around the mall. And there's this Greek place called Appa, and the kids went, Appa, Appa, Appa! And then the dad's all, Ugh, Appa, okay! And then they go, What does that have to do with it? Oh, nothing. I think the Canadians. Sound like the Canadian dope peaked early. Vector cereal! Early doesn't disqualify old women from joining next week's podcast for fun and gas. Thank you, Vishnu, for introducing me to Kelly Wand.